All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, grab them. We'll be in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Now, I'm going to tell you we're not going to read all of it. Uh, it'll take a long time, particularly chapter 7, which is an entire sermon. So you don't need two sermons in one day. Some of you might, I don't know, but most of you don't. That was a little funny. Okay. So uh, chapter 6 is where we'll begin this morning. The word of our God says this. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. There's no better way to introduce the main character of our sermon today than to show him as the first man ever elevated to the office of deacon. Stephen, like uh, Barnabas, you might remember we talked about two weeks ago, uh, uh, was not an apostle. He was not a disciple. He was not one of these guys who had been following Jesus for his whole life. He was a normal guy who has recently been converted, whose life had been made new by Jesus, and so Stephen followed Jesus with his whole life. This is a fitting sermon, I think, for the 4th of July, a day where we celebrate America's independence and freedom. And while freedom from taxation may have been the main goal all those years ago, religious freedom was certainly high on the list of priorities. Back then, uh, when you lived, if you lived in England, you belonged to a state church. Maybe that was the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Uh, in other parts of Europe, it would have been Catholic or Presbyterian or Lutheran. Uh, but wherever you lived, there was a state church, and you would have been imprisoned or even killed or fined or something if you went against the teachings or the, the flow of that state church. And so with the America came freedom to worship in whatever way you wanted, free from persecution. If you wanted to be Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Anglican or any other, even any other religions, you could do that in America now because we have freedom of religion and there is no persecution. And yet, while we are certainly not China uh, and no one is being thrown into prison for being a Christian here, there is still, as Jesus promised, there always would be, persecution for those Christians who truly live out the sort of life that Jesus calls us to. Because while America's core values may be tolerance and freedom and freedom of religion, most Americans, like the rest of the world, do not value, actually, the kingdom of Christ. Most people do not want the Jesus the Bible speaks of. And so while we are not being stoned like Stephen was for our faith, we truly live out the life Jesus has called us to, we will at some point be met persecution. So four points for us to latch onto this morning as we walk through this text. Why are we persecuted? How are we per persecuted today in the 21st century? How do we respond when we're persecuted? And what is the result of our persecution? 
We meet Stephen at the beginning of chapter 6, and he becomes one of the first deacons in the church, and he is this servant, faithfully taking care of widows, taking care of those in need, and his deacon ministry is so effective that even some of the priests, the text will tell us, whose job it was as a priest to take care of the needy, even some of the priests see the work that Stephen and his fellow deacons are doing, that these Jewish priests begin to believe in Christ and come to the faith. Then Stephen's ministry continues, and he's preaching the gospel, and the text says he's doing other signs and wonders, and people are coming to Christ, and their lives are changed under Stephen's ministry. And this gets the attention of the higher-ups. And so at the end of chapter 6, we see a group of men from all different synagogues around rise up to come and uh, dispute or argue with Stephen. Now understand, the more people who come and listen to Stephen, uh, the, the less people that are coming to these Jewish synagogues. The more people who attach themselves to the way, who begin to follow Jesus, the less people and the less influence these synagogue leaders have. And so they come, these, these leaders and these synagogues come and argue with Stephen, thinking that they could shut him up by proving he didn't really know what he was talking about that he was not an educated, learned man like they were. And they thought that the people in the crowds would see that they were the educated men, that they were the smart ones, and that they would stop listening to Stephen, and they would come back like, like good boys and girls back to the synagogue and listen to them. And that this public argument with Stephen would prove that. And I love verse 10. If you're looking at your Bibles, verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. They come and they argue with Stephen. Stephen is talking back with them, and they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. I love this verse. These guys show up thinking that they're so smart and that they're going to show this this nobody up, uh, uh, that they're going to shut him up. But, Jesus, but Stephen comes and he, he's kind of, he speaks like Jesus. He speaks with authority. He speaks with the spirit of wisdom. And he leaves them speechless. He leaves them stunned. Their arguments and their points didn't hold water. And I want you to understand for a moment that that is not unique to Stephen. That the spirit with which he spoke, the wisdom with which he spoke, was not something that is just unique to him. I want you to understand that you, if you are in Christ, can have the same sort of effect. When you are equipped with the word of God and you are empowered by the spirit of God who lives inside of you and you go and you share the truth and you share the gospel, there will be people who rise up against you. There will be people who want to argue with you. But the power of the gospel will always leave them stirred will always leave them shaken, will always leave them thinking. We are too often scared thinking that, you know, I don't have all the answers and, and, and we're not, I'm, not, I'm not good at arguing and, and I don't want to make things awkward and uh, I don't know what to say. But if the Spirit is with you and if you let him work through you and you share what you know, you articulate and defend the gospel that you know, elegantly or haphazardly, it will, have, it will work. It will affect people. 
and it will either soften their hearts or harden them, but it will make a difference. It will do something. The gospel is powerful that way. For these guys, no matter how good of a preacher Stephen was, it, it didn't soften their hearts. It hardened their hearts. It had the opposite effect that he wanted it to, but it hardened their hearts. And so these synagogue leaders, they escalate the situation, and they begin to persecute Stephen even more. And notice what they do according to verse 13. Since, since they had no real charge against Stephen, they really didn't have anything bad that they could say about Stephen. They didn't know what to say to get him in trouble because he didn't do anything wrong and he hadn't said anything heretical. But because of that, and they wanted to get rid of him, they set up false witnesses who would come before this trial and lie about Stephen and what he said and accuse him of blasphemy and heresy, speaking against God and his law. See, these guys, their hearts were hardened to the gospel. And if the gospel advanced, they would lose their power and influence and standing with their peers. So to them, the gospel was a threat. And isn't that always true of the world? The gospel is a threat to the world. A threat that they had to get rid of. And so since they couldn't refute the gospel, since their arguments could not dispute the gospel, they resulted to lying and political maneuvering in order to get rid of Stephen. And doesn't this make sense, like from our perspective? From our perspective, think about it. Christianity is such a good thing for the world, right? Like if, if Christianity could just take over, it would be a, the world would be a better place, Right? People would be healed physically and spiritually. People would be given purpose. There would be peace. People would be able to handle suffering on a completely different level. It would lead people to love their neighbors as themselves, lead people to love their enemies. It rids the society of levels of immorality. And all things, if the spread of Christianity and society makes society better. But yet the world hates the gospel. The world hates the spread of Christianity. The world wants nothing to do with it. They want to quash it. And so they write laws, they lie in order to get rid of and squash and stop the spread of the gospel. Like, why is it that Christianity still today in the 21st century is illegal in some countries? Because they see it as a threat to their country's way of life. In China, it is a threat to the Communist Party. It is a threat to power and a threat to control. In America, it is a threat to how people want to live their life. It is a threat to their freedom of expression and the, for the world to celebrate their lifestyle. It is a threat to their values. See, the values of the kingdom of Christ are at odds with the values of the world. And so why is it that Jesus promised us we would be persecuted? Because Jesus knew that the values of the kingdom of Christ will always be at odds with the values of the world. That the values of God's kingdom will always be at odds with this world that's fallen. And so when we live out the Christian life, when we live out the values of the Christian life, when we try to spread those values, when we try to spread the good news of the gospel, that forgiveness is available to all who would repent and trust in Christ with forgiveness of their sins, understand that the world, and even America, 
That is an offensive thing. It is an offensive countercultural message. And when you embody that, when you speak those truths, people will hate you for it and they will persecute you for it. Because the message of the gospel tells everyone that they are broken, that their life is marred by sin, that they need to turn from the sinful things in their life that they've been practicing and admit that they're wrong, admit that they're not a good person, admit that they need forgiveness and own it. But the world doesn't want to do that. The world doesn't want to own that. They want to live how they want to live. So the gospel is a threat and it's offensive. If we keep our head down, if we keep our mouth shut to keep the peace, to not stir the pot, to not push the issues, to not speak the truth in love, then do you know what will happen? What will happen if we keep our mouth shut and keep, keep our head down and keep the peace and don't stir the pot and don't push the issues and don't speak the truth in love? No one will persecute you. You'll be the kind of Christian the world loves, a silent one. The world loves Christians who keep their beliefs to themselves. Who, who think, who, the, love, the world loves Christians who think their Christianity is just a personal thing. That the world hates Christians who live out and share the truth of the gospel. And we're not called to be the people the world loves. We're not called to be the kind of people that the world can get along with. We are called to be light in darkness. We are called to advance a kingdom that is not of this world and that is opposed to the things of this world. And when we are light in the darkness, darkness wants to snuff out the light. The world wants to get rid of us, silence us, and so the world persecutes us. Why are we persecuted? Because we embody a kingdom that is opposed to this world. We embody a kingdom that the world is opposed to. In Acts, the persecution uh, escalates in the first six, seven chapters. The, at first, the apostles, uh, they're preaching and they're warned. They're, they're kind of brought in, uh, uh, held, and are, said, are told, hey, you guys got to stop this. No more talking about Jesus. They go out, and they don't listen, they keep talking about Jesus. So they're arrested again, and they're, they're not just warned this time, but they're warned, and they're flogged, they're beaten. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. And may the stripes on your back remind you of what will happen if you do. And now, it escalates again. Stephen is put on trial. He is falsely accused of heresy, blasphemy, false teaching, and he is thrown into the street while all his peers circle around him in a wild rage of righteous indignation, laughing, mocking him as they pick up rocks and hurl and chuck and throw rocks at him until he dies. Stephen is the first person to give his life in service to Jesus. He is the first in a long line of martyrs to come. See, after him, many Christians would be thrown to the, into, to the lions in the Colosseum as people would cheer for entertainment as the lions slaughtered them. 
Christians would be placed in vats of oil and burned alive or placed on stakes with oil pitch poured over top of them in order to light the Colosseum so that the games could go on at night so people could cheer as people were slaughtered. And that was 2,000 years ago. And so like, that brutal, uncivilized society, obviously things are different today and nobody does that, right? If only. The world is just as opposed to the kingdom of God today as it ever has been. Around the world, Christians are being hunted, investigated, caught, imprisoned, tried with false accusations in kangaroo courts. They are being skinned alive, starved to death, beaten, and killed. I will never forget the sound as I mistakenly watched on CNN uh, a line of about 10, 10 or 12 Christians who had been captured and had hoods on their face as their captors took a knife and cut their heads off. Persecution of Christianity is very much alive today. My sister-in-law was in China for a few years serving with a church plant, and when they would send emails, even emails back home, they had to talk in code because they knew the Chinese government was reading their emails, looking for them to slip up, looking for an excuse and a reason to round them up and throw them in jail. That, that's today. That's right now. Like There's a lot to be thankful for in America because none of us are worried about being thrown in jail or being hurt or killed for our faith. But yet that doesn't mean we don't face persecution of a different kind here. I recently was reading a, a story about a woman whose job was put on the line. She was, uh, she was the only one working in her family putting her husband through seminary. And she was working at a pharmaceutical company uh, as the quality control manager for uh, syringes. And this, this shipment of syringes came through, and, and she was uh, you know, quality controlling them, inspecting them, whatever. And she determined that, they, that there was a problem, that they weren't going to pass inspection. And, uh, and so she goes to her boss, and she says, hey, boss, I want you to know that this shipment just came through, and I just checked them out, and, and they're not going to pass. They're, they're bad, bad syringes. We can't ship those out. The boss is like, oh, no, and he kind of gets on his computer, and he types in some numbers and does some figures, and he goes, yeah, well, that's just not going to work. We can't, we can't afford that. Go ahead and ship him anyway. Now here she is, a Christian, faced with this issue. Does she, does she have integrity? Does she do what is right? And tell her boss, no, uh, no, I can't do that. They're bad. People will get hurt. And so she tells her boss, no, I can't do that. They're bad. We can't, we can't ship them. And so she goes home, and it's the weekend, and the president of the company, the CEO of the company, shows up at her house. And he says, hey, I understand we have a problem. I understand there's an issue with some syringes. I'm going to need you to, to ship those because it's going to cost us too much money. I'm going to need you to, to go ahead and sign off and push those through because I want you to have a job on Monday. And so now here she is, faced with having integrity, doing the right thing, and losing her job, not being able to pay her bills, her husband going to have to drop out of seminary, find a job, or capitulate, give in to the world, give in to its demands, do the wrong thing in order to keep your head above water. 
You compromise your values to keep your head down and reap the benefits. You see, while the threat of jail time is not something that you or I are likely to face in this country, if you follow Jesus, you will find yourselves at odds with others who might make life difficult for you. If you see your work, your job, your employment as a mission field, as you should, and you begin to share the gospel with coworkers, you might find yourself in an HR meeting being told, hey, you are not allowed to talk about religion at work. So what do you do? Do you just stop sharing the gospel because your job is on the line or maybe that promotion that you're after is on the line? Or do you say, no, the gospel is bigger than a promotion. The gospel is bigger than my job. And so no matter what the cost, I cannot stop speaking the truth. If you are a wedding photographer or a cake baker or something similar, you might find yourself in a precarious situation of being asked to do uh, to, to contribute to the services of a same-sex wedding. And, and your refusal might get you sued, might cost you tons of money, might cost you your livelihood. Will you remain faithful to the truth and the, and the threat in the face of the threat of persecution? Just this week, I was talking to a buddy of mine who was asked to officiate his sister's wedding. The one problem was that his sister is engaged to an unbeliever. And the Bible is clear that Christians should not marry unbelievers. We don't do missionary dating, missionary marrying. We don't do that. But now my friend is faced with this difficult choice between doing what is right and not performing this wedding. And if he does, it may damage the relationship with his sister. When I was in high school, my plan was to be an electrician. And one summer, I was working uh, on a hospital uh, expansion on the third floor, running wire, and, and, and I had been pretty open about my faith and been talking to the other, intern, you know, other low-level guys like me and even my bosses about church and Jesus and just casually talking about those things over break or whatnot. And they proceeded to make my life hell after that, throwing stuff at me. I'd do work, they'd rip it down. They'd call me names. They'd call me Bible thumper. They'd make fun of me. It's the reason, part of the reason I became a pastor because it's like, this is not for me. It was miserable. If you live a quiet faith, your coworkers and your friends and your family don't know you're a Christian, or they do, but it's never really an issue because it doesn't come up or doesn't change anything, you're not going to face persecution. But that's because you're also not following Jesus very seriously. Jesus commanded us to advance his kingdom, to give our lives in service to this cause. And he told us that when we do, when the world hates us, the world will persecute us. And so we should expect nothing less. Anyone who faithfully follows Jesus will at some point face persecution of some kind. Now that obviously looks different in America, thankfully, than it does in China and other parts of the world. But nevertheless, when you advance a kingdom that is not of this world, you will find that the world pushes back. So how do we respond to persecution? How do we respond when we are passed up for on that promotion and we know it's because the boss doesn't like that we're a Christian and we talk about it? Or how do we respond when we are fired because we shared the gospel 
with our coworkers, or we're fired for having integrity and not lying when our boss wanted us to? How do we respond when our friends and our family despise us and cut us off for our faith? Stephen gives us a great example. I want you to notice two things about him. Stephen has been brought before this trial, and he is asked to defend himself. And for 53 verses, like he give, he's given the opportunity to speak. Like they have this kangaroo court, this trial, and they're like, what do you got to say for yourself, dude? And so Stephen's like, all right, I got, I got something. And so for 53 verses, he preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts and maybe the whole Bible. Stephen could have brought the temperature down, right? Like he, he knows this is not a safe situation he's in right now. He could have, I mean, they killed Jesus. They've been beating his people. He knows it's not, he could have brought the temperature down. He could have kept the peace. He could have told them what they wanted to hear. He could have said, no, guys, you didn't, you didn't understand what I was saying. I wasn't saying that. I was saying this. Not a big deal. I think we're kind of, we don't want to fully agree, but we're close. You know, we just agree to disagree. No big deal. He could have done that. He could have said, you know what? I'm sorry. I know I wasn't supposed to be talking about Jesus. I won't do it again. I'm sorry. He could have done that. But he doesn't, but he doesn't, he doesn't turn the temperature down, he turns the temperature up. He doesn't just preach a generic long sermon. His sermon, you read chapter seven, goes through all of the highlights of the Old Testament and how every single time in the Old Testament that God sent a prophet or a redeemer of some sort to them, that God's people not only did not listen to that prophet, but they persecuted the prophet. And I want you to listen to how that sermon, like he, like literally, he goes through the whole time. He's like, Abraham showed up, you didn't listen to him. Moses showed up, you didn't listen to him. And he just, David showed up, you didn't listen to him. He goes, he goes through and through and through. And this is how he ends it. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. This is like really encouraging and uplifting. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, that's Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Needless to say, to say he stepped on their toes a little bit. He knows in this moment he has an audience who needs to hear the gospel and whose hearts have been hardened to it and he's got to do something to try to wake them up. He does not step down or back in the face of fear of what might happen. He sees the opportunity and he knows he's been called to this task. You see, like Stephen, we must be a people who share the truth, always prepare to face the consequences. Stephen knows what's coming for him or at least something like what's coming for him. And he doesn't shy away from it. He knows he's been called to this task, and he's going to face it no matter what it means. And so they get mad. They get mad that he calls them to the carpet, and they throw him out on the street, and they hurl rocks at him. And as they're hurling rocks at him, Stephen sees the heavens open up, and he sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father reminding him the finished work of Jesus. Jesus sitting and resting from his work is for him. 
and that God in this moment is smiling over him and what he's done. But as the rocks pelt Stephen over and over, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Like this guy has poured out his heart for these people, sharing the truth with them. He has been serving their widows and, and, and their orphans and all these people. He's been praying that they would repent and be saved. He's trying to work for their good, and he has only been met with ridicule and mockery. He's been tried in a kangaroo court, thrown into the street, where people cheer and laugh as he is bleeding from his ears as the rocks continue to hit him. And as he is struggling to lift his face, in spite of the rocks pelting him over and over again, he looks at the people throwing the rocks, and he says, Lord, forgive them. Lord, do not count this sin against them. How does he do that? How does he forgive those who are killing him? can do it because he knows the kind of grace and mercy he was afforded and what it cost to get him that grace. And it so changed him that he was able to extend the grace given to him to those who would kill him. We must share the truth, prepared to face the consequences, but we also must extend the same grace we have received from God to those who would oppose us. We don't fly off the handle at them. We don't get in a rage on social media and post why they're the devil. We don't get mad and swing at them. We do not hurt them, try to get them fired. Say, Lord, forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. The boss is against you. You say, Lord, forgive him. Don't hold it against you. And we extend grace, patience to those who would oppose us and try to do us harm. Which is exactly what Jesus called us to do when he said, we love your enemies. It was a grace that changed us. It was grace that has led us home. And it is the same grace manifested in you, shown through you, that will show our persecutors that the words of the gospel that our lips have spoken are actually true. It is the grace we show them that confirm our words to be true. Because only a people who know how much they have been forgiven can forgive those who are in that moment hurting and opposing us. And that is exactly what happened. That is exactly how God used Stephen in this moment of persecution. Because standing there, watching and approving and maybe even throwing stones himself, taking the whole thing in, was a man you know really well, Saul. Maybe you know him as Paul. Paul stood there and listened to the sermon and gave approval to the stoning of Stephen. A man who heard Stephen's sermon, a man who saw him face death while looking up into the heavens, asking for Jesus to receive his spirit. A man who saw the rocks hitting him and who in that moment forgave his executioners. This is the moment that the seed of the gospel is planted in Paul's heart. And in two chapters, 
Paul comes to know Christ. And it would change everything. Because Paul would travel the known world on three different journeys, sharing the gospel and planting churches, the same gospel in the same churches that right now he is cheering and approving of killing. You see, God uses persecution. He used it to begin the salvation of Paul. He used it, we see, in the next chapter. In the next chapter, we see that this church is scattered after Stephen is killed. They're they're, they're scared and they're kind of on the run. But God uses that to spread these Christians out across the world so that they might reach more people further and further away from Jerusalem and Judea. God used my persecution as an electrician because one of those guys that, that was giving me such a hard time in the middle of that summer came to know Christ himself. And he came to work and apologized for how he had been treating me. And together we kept after the others. And the others were just dumbfounded. Like they got that I was this weird Jesus freak. But they didn't understand that one of their buddies broke ranks and came to Christ himself. See, God promised that we would be persecuted. But he also promised that the gates of hell would never prevail against his church. And so we can strive forward. We can lose jobs, we can lose money, we can lose friends, we can get sued, whatever, because when we look up to the sky, we are reminded that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. He is sitting because the work is complete. The war for his kingdom has been waged and has been won, and it is coming every single day, little by little, into this world. It's coming. And so while we should be grateful for a country that is free, while we are grateful for the blood spilled and the lives lost to grant us free, the freest and greatest nation in the history of the world, we must sacrifice whatever we are called to. We must stand as light in the darkness. We must stand for truth. We must speak the life-changing message of the gospel. Even if we lose everything, no matter what we must sacrifice, even if we must bleed, even if it costs us our lives, we must do it because the kingdom we are fighting for is greater than anything America could ever dream of. And it is coming, not just for us, but for the whole world. And when it comes, there will be no more darkness, no more evil, no more persecution. It will be what all fairy tales dream of. It will be the happily ever after. Something that could only be achieved through the blood of God willingly given for broken, hard-hearted, vile men like me and like you. A love and a kingdom so amazing that we should all give our lives in service to it, no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Because the kingdom that is coming is worth everything we have and more. And though as we toil, as we work and as we sacrifice, it is not I, but Christ through me who brings it. Let's pray. Father, this morning, there are those in this room who understand the persecution that they face. They understand the relationships that have been tarnished or lost. They understand the promotions that they've been passed up for. They understand the difficulties that they've walked through. Lord, we pray that you give them grace and strength to continue. Father, there are those in this room 
who have not experienced those things. And maybe they haven't experienced them yet because it they just hasn't happened. Maybe they work with Christians and it's all good. But maybe there are some in this room, Father, who haven't experienced it because they have been living a keep your head down, keep your mouth shut, don't stir the pot, don't make it an issue kind of life. Father, would you show them this morning that there is no greater thing to sacrifice for than advancing the kingdom of God. That it is worth losing jobs and losing promotions. It is worth losing relationships. It is worth bleeding for, worth dying for, no matter the cost. We must pay it. Father, would you give us a boldness this morning to change the way we're living, that we would not be a people with their head in the sand trying to get by, but we will be a people who are advancing like an army, like a soldier advancing a a new kingdom. And Father, for those in this room this morning who don't know you, who are not advancing this kingdom because they don't belong to this kingdom, God, this morning, would you give them the the pull of their heart, the softening of their heart to say, I want to belong to a kingdom that is so beautiful, that is so good, that darkness could never overcome it. This morning, I'm going to stand up here at the front, and there's going to be two guys on the sides. If you have anything in your life you need to pray for, you want to pray for boldness, or maybe pray for a coworker you've been sharing the gospel with, or a friend, or somebody, or you want to pray uh, to, to, to be stronger at work or in your life for, for the gospel and more not afraid of consequences. We would love to pray with you about those things. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you don't belong to his kingdom and you want to, let us, let us share with you how you can come to know him, that he's done all the work and you don't contribute anything except the sin that needed paid for it, and Jesus will just graciously bring you into his family. If you're here this morning and the Spirit would lead you to do something, don't say no to Him. He's working for your good. Listen to Him and do what He would ask you to. God, give us the boldness and the courage to respond. In Christ's name we pray, all those people said, let's stand and sing together, church.